The New Statesman. Hello, you're listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast from the New Statesman's Spotlight team. We cover policy for those who shape it and the businesses it affects. I'm Becky Slack. In this episode, we're discussing science. UK science produces great value for society. Take a recent example. The UK led the world in developing a COVID-19 vaccine, work that was built on a solid base in biological science, cultivated over decades. But despite its past stories of success, Britain is trapped in a cycle of short-term thinking, which governs how R&D is funded. This short-termism creates instability, and it is much harder to attract high-value investment and funding and to develop talent amid such unpredictability. So how can policymakers and industry promote a long-term approach? On today's episode, we will be discussing the Royal Society's 2040 Vision for Science, which proposes practical solutions to this challenge. What is needed to gain political support for such a strategy, and what are the obstacles to securing cross-party support? This episode is sponsored by the Royal Society, the world's oldest scientific academy. I'm joined by their president, Sir Adrian Smith, and also on the panel we have Chi Onwara, Labour's Shadow Minister for Science, Research and Innovation, and George Dibb, Associate Director of Economic Policy at the Institute for Public Policy Research. Welcome to you all. Let's start with you, Adrian. So you believe that a long-term vision for science is what's needed to help Britain flourish. That's what the Royal Society's 2040 vision is all about. Can you break down for our listeners what the main components of that vision are, and what are the big changes that you think Britain needs to make in how it invests in science and R&D? Thank you. So... Currently, our ability to stay at the forefront of critical scientific fields is hampered by the general prevalence in politics of short-termism, sticking plaster solutions, and stop-start investment in science. So we absolutely need a long-term strategy for science that will create the stable conditions which are needed by both researchers, innovators, and the investors that the UK is seeking to attract. So first of all, it must truly be long-term, looking at least something like 10 years ahead. And here's the political problem, sitting outside the normal political cycle and having built-in regular review opportunities. But secondly, this needs, of course, to be matched by meaningful long-term spending. So from a Royal Society perspective, we were very glad to see uh, Peter Kyle, the, the new shadow DSIT secretary, announced at the Labour Party conference last autumn commitment to a 10-year funding cycle for R&D. This is fundamentally important. The uncertainty inherent in the cycle of Whitehall budgets and spending reviews damages confidence in the UK, both as a place to do business, to do research, and it hampers our ability to pursue the big ideas that improve lives and create opportunity. And, and thirdly, we, we need to look across the whole of the, if, what you might call the science ecosystem, including industry, non-profit organizations, universities. It need, needs an all-embracing plan for how the UK will build the infrastructure necessary to be in top-level scientific research competition and how the science system operates as part of a global scientific community. But maybe the most important of all, all this depends on people. So we need to recognize the role of people and talent, ensuring we have the right people in the right place, equipping our own population with a broad and balanced skill set, which is adaptable 
to future jobs and opportunities and processes. And finally, removing barriers to international collaboration. Science is inherently an international cooperative enterprise. So now that our participation in the Horizon Europe research program has been finalized, we must turn our attention to making sure that we attract the brightest and best to work and study in the UK. And here's a problem. Right now, we are non-competitive compared with other countries. Researchers who want to bring their skills here face upfront visa and other costs up to 10 times higher than in other leading science nations. Fees due to rise perhaps even further this year. So this is a kind of punitive tax on talent for businesses, talent for research organizations. And if we want to be a major international science player, we must reduce these kind of fees and shooting ourselves in the foot and show that we're open for business. So there's my fourth benefit. <laughs> Thank you, Adrian. And that's a really good um, starting point for a discussion. So Chi, can I come to you, please? Um, you've just heard what Adrian has said. Um, do you think this is the prescription that the UK needs? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. And, you know, a big thanks to the New Statesman and the Royal Society for focusing and promoting a discussion of science because it's so important to our country and our future. And I want to thank also the Royal Society uh, for their report. Uh, the Royal Society is absolutely right to diagnose short-term thinking on R&D is holding back British science and innovation. And that, of course, is holding the whole country back. And Labour's made clear through the five bold missions for government, which, which Keir Starmer has set out, that we have the political will to drive long-term change. And this is about breaking the country out. Because it's not only to, about science that we've had short-term thinking. We want to break the country out of the cycle of sticking plaster politics, give us a strategic long-term approach to science, innovation, and technology. Uh, so as Adrian indicated, under the Conservatives, funding for innovation bodies such as UKRI, United Kingdom Research and Innovation, only lasts three years. And that's not enough to see them through, what, three Tory prime ministers? It's not enough to create the innovation our society and economy needs. You know, and, and, and just to, to say this again, you know, in the last four, on a different way, in the last four years, we've had eight changes of science minister. And this, this erratic approach effectively comes straight from the top of government. So that's why, as Adrian uh, mentioned, at our conference in September, uh, Peter Kyle uh, announced that we are going to create certainty with 10-year research and development budgets. So it allows relationships with industry to be built, long, allows long-term partnerships to form and lead to investment in new technology and the infrastructure that underpins it. It gives our hard-working researchers the scientific and technical staff which underpin British science, it gives them greater job security and long-term certainty. And that's why we've had such a great response from the sector over this announcement. And we want to send a clear signal that we are the party of long-termism when it comes to science. Thank you. George, let's come to you. Let's focus on investment for a moment. How does the UK compare to other high high-income countries on investment and R&D? 
So actually, if you look at the question today, the UK actually performs relatively well compared to other countries. But I think it's worth looking at the journey we've been on, actually, because if you'd asked that question in 2017, 2018, we were actually quite far behind. So in 2017, the government set itself uh, a target to, to, of 2.4% of GDP. So for the whole country as a whole, that's the government and businesses combined to be spending about 2.5% of GDP on R&D. We were far off that target at the time, although that target this worth saying was not particularly ambitious. That was aiming to be average over a 10 year time scale. Now, actually the latest government measurements show that we are, have, have hit that target, but how? One of the reasons is that there has been some investment by government over recent years, increasing investment into R and D, but the actual biggest change that's happened is that we have changed the way that we measure R and D in the economy, because fundamentally that question how do we compare to other countries is actually quite a hard one to do. So there was a big mystery in UK R&D for a long time, which is that if, when the Office for National Statistics went out and did a business survey and said, how much do you spend on R&D every year? Joe Bloggs Limited. Then they came back with their numbers. But at the same time, we also give a tax credit in the UK. So we give companies a tax discount if they invest. But that number, that amount we were giving out in tax credits didn't add up with the business survey. Now, what the ONS have done is they've, they've brought those closer together and it actually has shown that the, in the UK, a lot more R&D is happening. Now we can have a discussion about whether or not that way of measuring is right, but what it has led to is a big uptick in our actual measured levels of R&D in the economy. So we're now at approximately somewhere between two and a half to 3% of GDP is spent on R&D. Now, if you look at where that comes from, most of it in the UK, at least, like every other country comes from businesses, but we also have to put this in the context. So what is the potential benefit to the UK economy of investing more in R&D? The UK is a, is a high-tech innovation economy, but in general, we're not a high investment economy. So we know that we need to keep investing in, in the, that high value cutting edge technologies if we want to have a leading edge as a wealthy, rich economy. So we know we need to be investing in R&D so that we can translate that into economic prosperity in the future. And hearing Adrian there talking about the potential for a long-term plan, again, if you look at what other countries have done in the past, there's a huge amount that the UK could learn from there. Korea is the, one of the highest investing R&D countries in the world, second only to Israel. And Korea actually transformed itself. They had set a 25-year strategy, even more ambitious than a 10-year strategy. They did that in the year 2000, and they transformed themselves from about 2% of GDP to over 4% of GDP, an absolute sea change. Now, I think that the, there'd be huge potential benefits for the UK economy if we were able to set a similarly long-term ambitious strategy. And that's before we even get into questions of what that R&D is even in, so never mind the kind of the green technologies and other things that we might be unlocking. Chi, just picking up on that point, so maybe 10 years isn't long enough. It feels like, given the current climate, that 10 years might be quite difficult to achieve anyway. Like, what are some of the sort of barriers that, that um, a, a Labour government might face in, in actually achieving those goals? In terms of the 10-year budget, we're setting out, we'll be setting out exactly uh, how that would work. Uh, but we've obviously got um, the, the sort of the habit, if you like, that um, budgets are set at spending review times, and that can be every typically every three years. 
So we would want to set a budget for so the key R&D institutions such as UKRI and, for example, ARIA, the new Advanced Research and Innovation Agency, at that you know at the first spending review for ten years. I, I think Adrian sort of ha- indicated again some of the challenges that this might meet in practical terms because organisations need to be accountable for that money still. We're not going to give 10, 10 years of funding and then go away and not look at some of the, at the, at the at how it's being spent and we need public value for money. So they wouldn't be able to commit the entire budget up front, for example. There, might, there would be an incremental approach, but we, and, and we'd be able to adjust some of the spending envelopes up and down to, to reflect priorities or you know, based on other factors. I think it's interesting that the you know the Conservative government chose to use a 10-year funding settlement for the recent quantum strategy to provide certainty and accelerate commercialization. So yeah, you know, I think you know I think when you've got the political will and you recognize that we don't know if there should we have the privilege of serving, we don't even yet yet know exactly the economic situation that we would inherit. So we need to build in flexibility around that. But you know we're, we're we're pretty sure that we can deliver on the ten year funding settlement. I think there are you know there are other areas you know, we we, we want to make sure, for example, we we don't want we see the politicalization of of some science funding with ministers identifying particular pots of money or particular areas that that they're interested in. We've also seen the kind of the idea that science is too, the main challenge facing science is that it's too woke. We want to be clear, you know, that so th- you know, these are some of the barriers in people's minds to a long-term commitment to science. Why do we care that a Labour government, we have a long-term commitment to, to funding science. And we know that it, part of that reason is because we know that it is key to our missions in government, the five missions that that Kia has set out and uh, long and particularly bringing growth back into the UK economy for the last 13 years. We've had uh, low or no growth. Science is critical to returning growth to the economy. That's why our long-term funding for science is such a key part of our policy. Thank you. Um, Adrian, I'd like to come to you. Can we drill down into a couple of the points that you made in your opening comments, please? I'm particularly interested in what you were saying about people and skills and how we attract the right talent into science. Can you go into a little bit of detail for us there? Exactly what sort of policy would we need in order to attract the right talent? In terms of skills and talent, you could really split into two, really, which is, if you like, our own UK pipeline. People who are born, brought up, educated in the UK. And uh, the other, the global competition for for high-level talent. Uh, And something we haven't really talked about We still have an education system in the UK where, roughly speaking, half of the school population gives up being educated into anything numerate or scientific at the age of 16. And I think this is scandalous, both in terms of the pipeline of skills and talent, but also in terms of public awareness. How, How really can you expect, ultimately, she and other politicians have to sell this stuff to the public if they're using taxpayers' money? And if half the population doesn't really understand what's going on, we have a problem. So I think Royal Society and others are very keen that as part of this agenda, we really do look at the education system and a much more broader based. And even though you might find that surprising from the Royal Society, 
very much more emphasis and support for vocational and technical education. When the vaccines come out, the TV cameras focus on the big superstars, forgetting there are hundreds of lab technicians and research managers in the background of the, of the TV photo that don't come on. So our own skills and talent pipeline is fundamental. And just the general kind of rhetoric around politics, if as scientists we're trying to attract the brightest and best to the UK, it's not helpful to have messages from the Home Office which suggests that foreign students are bad things and foreigners in general are suspicious. So I think this has to be seen in a wider kind of political sense of where we stand in the world and overcoming all the obstacles to being internationally competitive and not shooting ourselves in the foot by creating them. Chi, just coming in on that, there's obviously links with education, links with immigration policy. How is the Labour Party planning on coordinating all of that policy so that you can achieve your goals with your science strategy? I come from the northeast of England where, you know, we have some low skill levels in many areas, but we have huge potential in so many areas of life sciences, renewable energy, etc. And we need and an appetite for more skills and we need to be able to you know, deliver on the potential of everyone and everyone's region and everyone across our country. And, and the R&D people and culture strategy uh, from the government acknowledged that the UK would need 150,000 more researchers uh, by 2030 to meet scientific ambitions. So this is a key area for us. And we've, and that, we've said that we would create a Skills England to bring leadership and ambition into England's skills system. And we want to, we are particularly, I, I could go on about this for a long time, but, you know, that, but we are particularly determined that access to a, a range of skills should be available to everyone. And to, as a passion of mine, to encourage young people to pursue careers in STEM and to tackle the specific barriers faced by women and black and minoritized ethnic uh, people in their careers. And also to ensure that early career researchers can progress and work in the remain in the workforce, and there's a number of barriers there that we're looking that we're looking to tackle. So for so for just to, to be specific about things, we'll set up a growth and skills levy to driving to drive opportunity in every workplace. You know, the majority of the skilled workforce of 2034 are actually working now. As a recent report showed, so we need to be training people, be able to people in work needs to be able to access skills. And we are power growth in uh, every part of Britain by transforming existing uh, further education colleges into specialist technical ex excellent colleges. And that will involve communities and the chance to fit skills that lead to the local economy and the future skills that we are needed. So skills across the range of, the, yeah, I think the point, the key point that Adrian was making was that we need to value science and science skills throughout every part, not just in politics or in business, but every part of our communities and economies. And that's what Labour will be targeting with this, our skills council, amongst other policies. And what about the point about making the UK competitive on a global stage? What's the Labour's position on that? So it's really clear that we need to be attractive to international talent. And I'm also very clear that innovation, scientific breakthroughs, they come from people of different backgrounds, people of different genders, ethnicity, et cetera, and people from different disciplines coming together. So you do not get innovation 
without a mix of talent and being able to attract we can't and we, we can't meet the the research requirements of our for our future plans purely from British researchers. So and I think it's just also important to note that I don't think it was the campaign for science and education's study showed that most yeah, British people, I think it was about 70% of people recognize that need for welcomers, generally supporters of scientists coming into the UK and what more of the world's best scientists and innovators and to work in the UK. And I agree with Adrian that sort of language, which sort of condemns, condemns that is not helpful to us in attracting that. We can't just isolate science as a little box. There's the wider kind of social and educational kind of system and the immigration system. So um, I'm very pleased that she takes that on board in the same way that I do. We're starting to run out of time, but George, I can see that you've been nodding away at various points throughout. So I just wanted to give you the opportunity to come in. I think one of the things that Adrian mentioned there, that when you talk about the benefits of science and R&D, it's not just people in lab coats and it's not just Nobel Prize winners. Actually, investment in innovation unlocks a whole range of different jobs. If you're working in a film studio doing special effects, or if you're an app developer, or if you're working in Google headquarters, all of those are jobs that probably didn't exist 10 years ago and have been unlocked by innovation. We're not just talking about the conventional sorts of scientists' jobs. We are an economy that increasingly relies on these kind of high-tech, innovation-intensive jobs. And let's not forget also that one of the UK's biggest export industries is actually higher education itself. Universities are strengthened by their position as R&D centres, as often one of the places in the country where lots of R&D happens, but also anchor institutions for the cities that they might be in. So very much echo what Adrian was saying, Angie, about making sure that we're attracting the best people to Britain's universities. So yeah, really just recognising the breadth of the different benefits that investment in R&D can have. George is absolutely right. And perhaps what we haven't spoken about in the time we've had is the role of the private sector. So we talked about what government can do. And one of the things, and you know, we've made our commitments to long-term funding, et cetera. One of the things that government can do is make it easier for businesses to engage with universities and research centres and also to support and drive spin-outs, startups and spin-outs that can come out of scientific research and they can not only drive uh, economic growth, which is really important, as I've said, but also the job opportunities and the increased productivity across our economy as a whole. And that's part of what, part of what our Labour's industrial strategy is focusing on, giving the support for that, for the private, to make private sector more, also more science and research driven. Yeah, that's, uh, we would also highlight that's an area where We've had far too much short-termism as well. She mentioned earlier we've had eight different science ministers, but our analysis shows we've had 11 different industrial strategies or growth plans over the same time period. So making sure that businesses only invest when they understand where future growth opportunities are and they only do that when they understand what the long-term plan is. So these things all do absolutely mesh together. Adrian, do you want the final word? That final comment of George's, that the, all these things mesh together is important. And the curse of non-joined up government. Here, here. Bravo, if we can get around that. Excellent. Thank you, everybody. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much to Chi Onwara, George Dib, and Adrian Smith for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more of Spotlight's policy reporting in our standalone Spotlight podcast feed or the New Statesman Spotlight website. The links are in the show notes. I'm Becky Slack, and our producer has been Chris Stone. Thanks for listening.